Well, Heavenly Father, I am uh, I'm thankful that we get to be a part of Compassion. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, the kids that we sponsor. I'm thankful for the kids we're going to sponsor in the future. Uh, I truly believe that the sponsorship of the kids in Bolivia is going to change that country. And Lord, I know that as we invest in them, they get better nutrition, better education, they get a better understanding of the gospel. Uh, Lord, those kids are going to grow up and they're going to be the politicians and the doctors and the, the nurses. They're going to be the ones that are running the industries there. Uh, Father, I would pray that as they go, they would take with them the gospel wherever they go. Lord, so thankful for this generational impact that we can have there. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, the ministries that are meeting all over the world today to just worship your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I think of uh, Calvary Chapel in Rollins, uh, thinking of Anthony and Yvette Zabala and uh, man, they were, they were serving here in our children's ministry, serving in our uh, sound booth back there, and now they're uh, ministering the gospel in a town that can sometimes be hard to minister in. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that uh, uh, they would be able to break through some of the, the toughness of the people there uh, to get through with the gospel message. Father, I pray also for uh, Pastor Joe Arnold of Sunrise Church of the Nazarene. I pray for him and his ministry, but I pray for the church there uh, that they would continue to grow as a church, that you would continue to use them mightily in this city. Uh, Father, that you would be um, answering prayers for them even now. I thank you, Lord, for our worship ministry and the chance that we get to uh, sing praises to your name. I thank you for the hard work of Doug and organizing and getting it all ready, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes that people will never see, but they'll get to experience in worship, and it'll just seem uh, so nice and natural and normal. But uh, for him, it was hard work. Uh, Lord, I thank you for all those who are serving uh, with him, alongside him on the stage, the singers and the, the ones who are playing instruments and all that they put in, not just on Sunday morning to be here early to practice, but uh, to also come in earlier in the week to give up of their time so they can lead us to a closer place of worship. Uh, Father, I also thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to be in the book of Revelation again today in chapter 5. Uh, Lord, would you give us a greater glimpse of you as we study out this passage? Uh, Father, would you help uh, your Holy Spirit, who's in our midst today, who's dwelling among each of us who believes. Uh, Lord, that your Spirit would speak to us through this passage, that there would be things that we could learn about you, uh, things that we can learn about how we approach life. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you need it. Uh, I want to remind you where we are in the book of Revelation uh, not just that we're in chapter 5, but at last week in chapter 4, John the Apostle was caught up into heaven. Uh, I believe that was also, uh, time-wise, the change for the book of Revelation, where it goes through this, uh, this uh, outline that he gave us in, John, or in Revelation chapter 1, where it says uh, the things that were, the things that are, and then the things after these things. The reason I believe chapter 4 starts the after these things is the first words in John chapter 4, verse 1, after these things. So yeah, really impressive there, right? Uh, however, uh, as he uh, begins to get a glimpse into heaven, John chapter 4 is really just him trying to, to get his bearings. Like he's seeing heaven. He's actually seeing heaven for the first time. And so as he enters into heaven, the first thing he sees is the throne and God on the throne. And then the rest of the chapter is him kind of describing uh, the surroundings, and everything there is then listed in relationship to where the throne is. And so from the throne, uh, there was this crystal uh, rainbow 
glass around the throne. They called it the sea. And then around the throne, there were 24 other thrones. Sitting on those 24 thrones were the elders, which I happen to believe are the overcomers from chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's the believers up in heaven. Uh, And then there were these four creatures that were kind of strange looking that I believe are uh, angelic creatures, uh, similar to those that you see in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Then beyond that, uh, we see uh, kind of this uh, moment where we have God the Father on the throne, the Holy Spirit represented by the seven lampstands, and then Jesus himself speaking. And so we have the triune God completely visible there in heaven. Uh, From there, we then get our first glimpse of worship in heaven as they begin to sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And I told you that uh, the book of Revelation comes with a soundtrack. There's about 14 different sections of praise and worship in this particular book. The first one last week, there's going to be three new sections for us today uh, in Revelation chapter 5. But at this point, John hasn't actually told us why God brought him up into heaven. Like he's not there yet. He's just like, just imagine like opening your eyes for the first time and trying to adjust to the world around you. That's what it's like as he enters into heaven. He starts to get his bearings about what he's seeing. Uh, But he picks it up in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So we're seeing now his attention, again, in relation to the throne, just like everything else, the throne of God. But his attention is now drawn to the right hand of God, and he sees a book, or most likely probably a scroll is what he would mean by book there. But he sees a book in the right hand, and this book has two interesting characteristics. Number one, uh, it is written on the inside and on the back, which is why we think it's a scroll. And then it has seven seals on it. Now, we know when we're going through the book of Revelation that he doesn't say anything accidentally, that there's reasons why he's pointing these things out. So the Spirit has now drawn his attention to this particular book in his hand, and he sees that it's written inside and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. So these things have purpose here. Uh, I believe the book is actually going to be a representation of everything else we see in the book of Revelation after this. I believe as he's opening that, it's the revealing of the things that he was told he was going to see after these things. However, uh, we can look at these things and try to make some connections to the rest of Scripture. Uh, Another thing we want to make sure we're doing really throughout the Scripture, but specifically in books of prophecy, is to try to be careful how we interpret things that we match up to the scriptures and not try to guess too much. I think one of the big dangers of going through prophetic books is, uh, and I feel like this happens a lot, as you're going through a prophetic book, there are things there that aren't explained and you spend all of your time looking at the things that aren't explained and you never pay attention to the things that are explained for you. So that's one of those things you have to be careful about. And I think that's why so many people are confused about the book of Revelation. Typically, when people are teaching on the book of Revelation, they want to give you something new that nobody's ever given you before. Yeah, nobody, including God, ever gave this to you. It wasn't his intent to reveal everything. He's revealing enough so we can get a glimpse of the future. We can get a glimpse of heaven. So when he tells us that there is a book written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals, uh, we're going to try to figure out what that looks like, but we don't want to go too far in that. 
Uh, the way that we often can do this is by looking at other scriptures. Uh, the idea of a sealed book comes up in other prophecies. Uh, you see it in Isaiah chapter 29. There was a sealed book, and specifically in that passage, he tells us what the sealed book. He says this sealed book is a vision for the people. So it's another prophecy. So it seems as if there's some kind of connection to this idea of a sealed book being prophecy or being vision. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 2, we have, a, again, a sealed book, but it's written on the front and on the back. He tells us specifically that it is lamentations and woe. Well, if you read through the seals that we're about to see, you're going to find that they represent lamentations and woe. Uh, it's going to be a conqueror, war, famine, death, martyrdom, terror, and then finally silence. That sounds to me like lamentations and woe. That sounds like bad stuff's about to happen. So we're seeing this connection that these prophecies will lead to some dangerous times. The other thing uh, that I think you can connect here in the Scripture, uh, Daniel chapter 12, in the, at the end of the book of Daniel, uh, Jesus gives this prophecy, or God gives this prophecy to Daniel, and he tells him to write it down, but to seal it up for the end of time. And so it seems to me that there's some sort of connection to the prophecies of Daniel, those that were revealed, but there was more to be revealed that was supposed to be revealed later at the end of time. Uh, it seems like there might be some connection there to that sealed up book for the end of time, as this book is talking about the after these things, the end of time. So, so an, an additional revelation beyond the things that we saw in the book of Daniel, that more is being revealed. It's a, a doctrine that we call progressive revelation, but throughout time, God has revealed more and more and more of his plan. Of course, we have that collected here in one book. But as this was first being revealed to people, they had a, a smaller vision of what we have. We have more and more, generation after generation, more has been added. Uh, we've been able to experience more of these things and see what God's actually working out in his plan. It's been progressively revealed to us in ways uh, that maybe we hadn't seen before. So, we now have our attention focused on this sealed book, and we see that it's written on the inside now, and that it has seven seals. Uh, I'm not going to get much into the seven seals for two reasons. Reason number one is there's no explanation why there's seven seals to us in the Scripture. There's no other example of this in Scripture. Uh, there is an example in history. I was told as I was reading through some of the things that the Romans would use seven seals on a legal document. And so some think this is actually more like a legal document, like a handing over. Uh, they would say that this is the deed to the planet Earth. Um, they'll make a slight connection there to Jeremiah, where Jeremiah describes uh, a sealed deed uh, to purchase some land. Um, but uh, that seems a little bit of a stretch to me. Uh, the real reason I don't want to talk too much about the seven seals is chapter six. He's going to tell us what each of those six or each of those seven seals uh, is representing. Well, the first six come in chapter six, and then the seventh one comes in chapter eight. Uh, but that's, to me, what's happening. As he opens those seals, he's telling us what he wants us to know about those seals, what they represent one by one. So we don't want to uh, get ahead of ourselves or try to guess too much in these things. So verse two, it says, I, this is again, uh, John the apostle here who's writing, he says, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book 
or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so here we see John uh, now paying attention to this strong angel. Uh, There's, you know, no rhyme or reason in my mind what the difference between a strong angel and a not strong angel is. I'm assuming they're all stronger than me. But this angel appeared in some way as he looked at him, a strong angel. He's proclaiming in this loud voice. He's asking the question, who's worthy to open this book? Who can actually open this book? And he makes it sound like a search was made in heaven and a search was made on earth and nobody was found worthy to read the book. And John just begins weeping over this. I mean, think about who John is, right? Like this is the Apostle John. He's in his 90s at this point. He's been brought up to heaven to get a glimpse of the things that are after these things. He sees the scroll and all of a sudden he finds out, I made this trip for nothing. Nobody's worthy to open it. And that includes him. Even he's not worthy to open it. And he begins to weep over this. Greatly, it says, because nobody was found to open the book. There was nobody worthy. And just about that time, one of the 24 elders says, wait a second, stop weeping. Behold, the lion, the root of David, the overcomer, he's able to open the book and the seven seals. So he tells us there is somebody who can open this book And he uses three descriptions to make pretty clear to us who this person is who can open the book. The first example he uses is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably heard that is a messianic title of Jesus Christ. You've probably gotten the idea that you already know who this is, like you're reading ahead here. You already understand that this is Jesus. But when it was written down, it's being written very specifically so we know exactly who he is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's written that way on purpose. In the book of Genesis, chapter 49, Judah is described as the lion's whelp. And then it goes on to tell us in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 49 that from Judah will come one who will hold the scepter, which means he'll be king forever. And so this was a messianic prophecy. What this is telling us is the the one who was prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, way back in the beginning of the Bible, to be the eternal king. He's the one who's worthy to open the book. Again, we know that's Jesus, but he's pointing it out that from the beginning, Jesus was the one who was intended to open this book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second title that's there uh, is the, the Root of David. Again, this is a messianic title. It's intended to remind us of something. Uh, it should remind us of the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about one coming from the branch, the root of David or Jesse coming through that lineage. It's describing a royal lineage through David. And it tells us that that person will have on him the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to describe the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. But again, this is that promised Messiah that they're looking for. And so as 
prophesied in Genesis, as prophesied in the book of Isaiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's the one who from the beginning was intended to open this book. He's worthy to open the book. It was always God's plan. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He's of the right lineage by saying he's of the root of David, which means he comes from the family of David. So if you think of this in a family tree, you have the family Judah, and if you follow that down, you get to a guy by the name of David. So Judah was promised a king forever on the throne. You follow that down to a guy by the name of King David, who now has a kingly family line, right? And then you follow that down to the Gospels. Matthew and Luke and John and Mark, they talk about Jesus being of the tribe of David, of the, fa- or the tribe of Judah, of the family of David. In other words, he is uh, legitimately able to sit on the throne as a as an heir to the king, to the kingdom of God. He's an heir of the throne of God. So he fits all the prophecies. And then that third picture is that he is an overcomer. Uh, we see that in Revelation chapter 3. We already saw him describe himself that way. Uh, again, in, in chapter 2 and 3, he's talking to those who overcome. But then he tells us that he has already overcome. He says this in verse 21. Uh, he who overcomes, that's future, I will grant to him to sit down on the th- uh, with me on my throne as I also overcame, that's the past, Jesus is the one who's already the overcomer, and sat down with my Father on his throne. Uh, we also see this in John chapter 16. Uh, the Gospel of John chapter 16 is that section there right before Jesus goes to the cross. So in chapter 14, he's comforting his disciples. In chapter 15, he gives us that beautiful image of the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who remains in me. Uh, So you have that beautiful picture there. He describes to the disciples uh, this one commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another. Chapter 16, he starts warning them about what's about to happen. He tells them that he's going to die and that he's going to raise again from the dead. And then verse 33, he finishes that up before he prays for them in chapter 17. He says this, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. This is Jesus, the overcomer that we're looking forward to. He's the one who is worthy to open uh, the seals on that scroll. He's the one that's worthy to do these things. And so verse 6 And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So you would expect at this point that a lion would be there to take that out of his hand, right? That was the image given. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Maybe even a root, like I am root, and come and grab the the book. (laughs) Sorry. Come grab the book out of the hand. Or that he would be coming through like, I am the overcomer. But no, when he turns to see this image, it's now an image not of a lion, not of a root, not of an overcomer, but of a lamb standing as if slain. So you're seeing a lamb that has been sacrificed. And that lamb is the one who reaches into the hand of God and gets the scroll with its seven seals 
and he's the one that's worthy to open it. Again, if you've been around Christianity very long, you recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Uh, That's a connection that we make, but all of this is intended for the Jewish reader to make these connections all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, The Jewish reader, when they hear about a sacrificed lamb, uh, they think of a couple of things. They're first going to think of the book of Exodus, chapter 12. We just covered this on Wednesday nights, uh, I guess uh, last week and the week before that. We just covered Genesis chapter 12. It's the time known as Passover, when the nation of Israel was in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God sent his angel of death into the land, and that angel would pass over the house of the Jews. Here's how he knew it was a Jewish house, so he would pass over them not to kill any of their children, their firstborn child, they would have sacrificed a lamb and taken its blood and put it on their doorposts. And as that angel of death went over that house, if he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, he would pass over that house. And now the Jews celebrate the Passover season. We celebrate it too, but we've changed it up a little bit, right? We call it Easter, or in our case, we prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday, Because the Passover, the death of the lamb, is not the end of the story. The story continues that that lamb was resurrected to the right hand of the Father, which is where we see him now. He's at the throne room of God. So this same image of Jesus. You're going to see that again in Scripture. uh, of The lamb of God then, from that time forward, you're going to see at the tabernacle in the wilderness, at the temple of God, that they would bring these lambs for sacrifice at the time of Passover. Each one of them then a picture of the future sacrifice that would be taken on by Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, it describes the Messiah as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. And then it tells us as well there uh, that this Lamb will bear the sins of many. It begins to describe the Lamb paying the price of our sins, redeeming us out of slavery and bondage. Isaiah 53 uh, verses 7 through the end there. And then in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is first seen in that Gospel, in John chapter 1, it's at the baptism. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the wilderness, and he sees Jesus coming. And John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, who is sacrificed for our sins, he is the Lamb of God in the throne room of heaven. He is the one who is worthy to open the book. Now, here's the deal. He's still not going to open it. We still don't get to see this week what's in the book. Because as soon as he's identified as the one who is worthy, they start a worship service. And so what follows for the rest of this chapter is three different worship songs in heaven focused in on worshiping God. And so we have kind of that Uh, I guess, cool connection there uh, as we look at that. Again, I've I've told you before, I I think the book of Revelation just comes with a natural soundtrack to it. I think God has put these moments of worship all throughout there. I think each one of them uh, is revealing to us a little bit more about who God is, revealing to us also a little bit more about who we will be or what we will be doing in heaven. And so let's make sure we take a look at these worship songs and catch these things. So we pick it up here in verse 8. When he had taken the book... This is the lamb. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe 
and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So as soon as we identify who the worthy one is, he takes the book out of the right hand of God, and immediately the angels and the 24 elders, these four living creatures before the throne, and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, and they begin to worship Him. The description here is, is pretty awesome. Well, first of all, if you can imagine them all falling down before this, this slain Lamb, like in heaven, uh, it, it seems as if the resurrected Jesus Christ is still going to bear the scars, the marks of the crucifixion. And when they see him being the worthy lamb who can take that scroll out of the book of the right hand of God, the prophecies, the plan or the purpose for the future, for the eternity of the world that God has created before time, all laid out, getting ready to be revealed. When they see the one who's worthy, they fall down before him to worship. Now that is the picture that you see throughout scripture of worship, this falling down before. It's a powerful image because it describes worship as submission to the one who is actually worthy. Uh, it, it puts us in our place, so to speak. Worship is putting yourself in, in, in proper place, in proper perspective. God is the one who is worthy of all the worship and all of the praise, and I am less than God. And I demonstrate that by falling down before him, by saying praises about who he is, by even repeating the phrase that worthy are you. And so they're worshiping the Lamb who is, by the way, God. Jesus is God. We have to keep that in mind. As some people get that confused. They say he's like unto a God. No, Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's just who he is. And we have one God who eternally exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so here is Jesus who is God, the Lamb, receiving the worship of the 24 elders, which I believe is us in heaven, and these angels, these four uh, angelic beings before the throne of God. Now, when they fall down before the Lamb, it tells us that in their hands, they're holding some things. They're holding a harp, and they're holding golden bowls full of incense. You're probably familiar with the picture of people in white holding a harp in their hand in heaven, like that's what people thought, like we're going to become angels in heaven and we'll be up there and we'll have our harp and we'll be jamming on the harp for all of eternity. What's less known is that in the other hand of the overcomers is a bowl full of incense. Incense is the stuff that uh, uh, back in the day, I don't know if people still do this, but they used to burn incense in their homes so that nobody knew that they were smoking in there, right? And so it makes the room smell like incense instead of smoke or weed or whatever it is people are smoking in their house. Um, it's covering the smell. It's, it's a sweet aroma. It's a sweet smell. Uh, I believe in the Catholic church and in the Orthodox churches, they still do this when they pray. They will light, not because they're trying to hide that they were smoking or anything like that. They will light an incense and it'll be the aroma rising before God, this sweet aroma. And the reason they make that connection is it tells us what those bowls of incense are here. In verse 8, it says, they are the prayers of the saints. So imagine now our prayers going up to heaven as a sweet incense before God, stored in heaven to worship Him. 
Our prayers. That's where our prayers go. Some people have this misconceived idea that we're wasting our time in prayer. Even if I don't get the things I want when I pray, even if God answers my prayer by saying no, because no, by the way, is an answer, in case you're curious, and if he can't say no, then he's not really all that powerful. That makes us God if he has to do everything that we say. But my prayers, even if I don't get what I want when I pray, they still are represented in heaven before my Father, and they're a sweet smell to Him. They are an incense before Him. My prayers, your prayers, as they go up into heaven, they're represented before the throne of God. So these guys now are bringing the prayers of the saints, and they begin to sing a new song. Uh, I don't know exactly what the song sounded like as far as the, the, the way that it goes, but I do know you can put a, pretty much any song to the Gilligan's Island theme song. So... Feel free to try that out. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. Anyway, um, they were singing it in Hebrew, so it probably sounded different, or maybe they were singing in a heavenly language that we don't know. Uh, but they begin to sing this song, and the song is this, Worthy are you, speaking to the Lamb who they've bowed down before, to take the book and break its seals. And why is he worthy? It tells us right there in the song, For you were slain. And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now think about the importance of that. Number one, it tells us why is Jesus worthy? He was worthy because he was slain, and because of his blood, he was able to purchase people for God. He was, to, he was able to redeem us to buy us out of the bondage and slavery of sin, to buy us out of hell. That's why he's worthy to open it. That's why he's the one that's worthy. But then look what he's doing in this purchasing. He's purchasing for God a people that is, number one, multicultural. It is people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. It's worldwide. He's buying people from every part of the world. It's multicultural, every type of person, every tribe. It's from everywhere. Of course, we can see that represented in our own midst from Sunday to Sunday as we recognize that each one of us has different backgrounds, different tribes, if you will, that we're from, different people groups. And we've come from all different places. Many of you sent here by the Air Force, but we came from all different places to be right here. It's that picture of pulling out not just the people of the nation of Israel, but people from everywhere gathered together, and it says that those people have a job to do because they now are a new kingdom. We are part of God's kingdom, and we are priests in God's kingdom. It's starting to describe our role now. You know, when we think about eternity, sometimes people have this weird vision they, they think about the harp and they think about the cloud and we're just hanging out on clouds and we're singing. And if you're like me, you might think to yourself some things that I've thought over the years. Number one, I don't want to hear my voice for all eternity. And, you know, it's about noon now. You're thinking, neither do we. <laughs> Speed this up a little bit, Pastor Sean. The second thing is, if I have to do one thing for all eternity, isn't eternity going to be kind of boring? But it's so much more than that. 
He gives us a job description for our future. We're going to be bringing sacrifices to God in that we are priests, so we're going to be serving as priests in the kingdom of God. But it also says we will reign upon the earth, that we'll have some sort of rulership, some things to do. We'll have a plan and a purpose for our future, even in eternity, where we have these positions of of rulership somehow. Uh, I think if you look at the way the nation of Israel was originally set up, all of that was intended to be a picture of these things. Uh, when you think about the incense and all that that we talked about before, that was part of the picture of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like a blueprint for heaven. We'll see that in a few weeks in the book of Exodus when we get to chapter 30. But in that area, uh, on Wednesday nights, but in that area, it describes the, the, the tabernacle, and it's really just a picture of this throne room that we're seeing here. Even down to the tarp that they raise over the top is supposed to be covered with these sewn-in pictures of angels or of cherubim all the way around. And you have the altar of incense. You have all of this stuff that's described here uh, in symbolic form. It's like it's a little miniature blueprint of heaven. But then as God established the nation of Israel, he established it to be a nation ruled by priests. That's the way he established it. They didn't have a king until they began to sin. And they said, why can't we have a king like all the other nations? And Samuel, the high priest, says, oh God, they've rejected me. And God said, they didn't reject you. I am their king. They've rejected me. It's a restoration of the intentions of God. All of what was going on in the nation of Israel was intended to be a picture to the rest of the world what God intends to do in the future. So now we have this job description of what we're going to do. That's song number one. Uh, Song number two we find here in verse 11. We'll find uh, a little bit of a different picture of who's worshiping in this case. It says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so uh, they begin to now shout in worship, but the shouting is no longer just the 24 and the four. It's not just the elders and the four creatures. It tells us now he looks and he hears, which that's not how I look. I look and I see, but he's going to look and he's going to hear the voices of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels surrounding them. Now, let's just kind of put that into perspective. The word myriad has a meaning. It means 10,000. If you say myriads, that means it's at least 20,000, right? Because it's multiple myriads. Well, he's saying there are myriads of myriads. Which what he's, what he's saying is there are whew, at least 20,000 groupings of 20,000, which is 2 million now. And then on top of that, there are thousands, which is at least 2,000, groupings of thousands. And so over two million angels surrounding him in heaven. And imagine that voice now as they all together say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive. And now it's not worthy to praise, but worthy to receive. Not worthy to open the book, but worthy to receive all the honor and the glory and the power and the riches and the blessing. 
He's worthy to receive all of that. But imagine the volume of that. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like, we think of worship here as like, this might be a lot of people and it might get kind of loud. But imagine this. This is the first time it came to me. It was years ago. Uh, It was a thing called Promise Keepers. I don't know how you have ever been involved in Promise Keepers, but it was these men's conferences. I was down in uh, Boulder at CU. And so we're at the Boulder Stadium and it's full of men. And then they begin to sing together. And it was like goosebumps. And I'm like, man, this is what heaven's going to be like. No, not even close to the amazing moment where millions are singing, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And in this case, He's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's worth it all. He deserves it all. That's the second song. And then the third song here in verse 13 And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And now we go from the angels singing with the overcomers and the creatures, we now add to it, all of creation begins to sing. And I don't know what language the fish are singing in, but they are singing. They are crying out before God. To Him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion, which means they're in charge forever and forever. And at that point, the angels start saying, Amen, Amen. And it says they keep saying it, Amen, Amen. They're just repeatedly saying, Truly, surely, I agree. And then the elders again, which I again believe is us, once again, we fall down in complete submission to Him, and we worship Him by putting our place are putting ourselves in that proper position of authority. And all of that, two weeks now, John trying to describe what's going on in heaven, he still hasn't looked in the book. Next week, he looks in the book. We start to see what happens as he breaks those seals. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. The book of Revelation, I don't really like it after chapter 5. I just don't. Everybody else seems to love the stuff that happens after chapter 5. I don't want to spend my time thinking about death and destruction and plagues and all that kind of stuff and the darkening of the skies and the stars falling. Like, that sounds miserable to me. And I honestly believe I'm going to be witnessing that from heaven. I'm not going to be experiencing that stuff. But I also believe that we should teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so next week, I will go against my better judgment and keep working through the book of Revelation. Funny story to close us out, really, I don't even have to tell it, but I will anyway. When I was doing youth ministry years ago, um, there, there was always this thing, so that the youth ministry that I was doing in Missouri at this Baptist church in Missouri, I wanted to teach verse by verse, primarily because I didn't have time to study the curriculum they gave me and then to make sure it was true. I would rather just work through books of the Bible, but they would prefer that I used curriculum. And so when I first got there, I tried to agree with them, and they gave me this study guide. They wanted me to teach the children in junior high and high school through the book of Revelation. 
And I get this study guide and I start just teaching it week after week. And when we got to chapter five, it stopped and it didn't cover anything in between. The next section was Revelation chapter 20. And I was both mad and happy at the same time. Like, how dare you leave stuff out? But I don't like any of that stuff in the middle anyway. So anyway, next week, I will get us into Revelation chapter 6 and all the crazy stuff that people seem to get excited about. But let's just remember this as we close today, that we submit ourselves in worship to God because He is worthy of it. He deserves our worship. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I can't wait for heaven. I know that uh, all things in your time and all things according to your plan. Uh, Lord, this morning I'm thinking specifically of a, a guy from our church that passed away this weekend. And Lord, I know that because of his faith in your son, Jesus Christ, he's experiencing things that we can only read about today. Lord, I pray that we would all look forward to that day. And that we would live for you as long as we're here. That we would have a growing excitement day by day, knowing every day that we're closer to being able to experience you in person. Father, I do pray for those of us who are still here who aren't there yet. I pray for uh, Virginia, his wife. She's going to be struggling over the next couple of weeks. Uh, struggling for the rest of her life. But uh, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort her. And I pray, Lord, that you would increase in her her desire to be home with you. Your Father, for all of us, that we wouldn't just get caught up so much in the things of the world that we never consider the things of heaven. Or that we would recognize that you're using the things of this world to prepare us to be priests in your kingdom and to be rulers in your kingdom. And I don't know exactly what all of that looks like, but, but Lord, I'm ready for it. I pray that we all would be. We thank you and we love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close in worship.